you're going to start talking about the Christian faith, if you're going to make the audacious claims that the Christian faith makes, if in any way, shape, or form you are going to identify yourself with a faith called Christian, the starting place of that faith is one word, and it's the word grace. By the grace of God, we say. But I think often when we start talking about grace, the grace of God, mostly we talk of grace as something God gives to us when we're bad, when we're sinful. That grace is about covering our sin. I think we sometimes treat the grace of God as if it's God looking the other way and saying, okay, I love you, it's okay. But I have a question for you. Is that grace? Now, I think sometimes we treat grace in a way where it's God saying, well, it's okay. And then we just go living the way we were before because we're under grace. But is that grace? There's one phrase that really describes what the church in the Nazarene is about, our Wesleyan tradition, this great denomination we're a part of that's around the world. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase that's been lost in so many things that we have probably misrepresented at times and so many things that we have forgotten about. But it's really the optimism of grace. That's the heart of what our theology is about. That's the heart of what we believe. I, I have to tell you that that's the, that's the reason why I'm a pastor in this tradition, because of the optimism of grace. Mark Maddox puts it this way. At its essence, God's grace is God's loving presence active in the world. His presence actually making possible our response to him actively working in our lives. And so now, now grace moves from just what God does for me to what God makes me to be. Grace becomes God actively working in me and, and, and through my life and through the church and through the world. And now grace is this activity of God in our world. So over the next several weeks, beginning with creation and moving our way to the resurrection where all things are made right. We're going to think about God's active presence, this optimism of grace in our lives. And my friends, that is a great reason for optimism. That God is active. And so Lord, today, help us. Help us to see your grace, and how wonderful and beautiful it really is. Amen. Is there a song that you could just play over and over? Uh, maybe a song that you never get tired of hearing, and you play it over and over and over. My go-to song right now is the song, So Will I. And so you need to Google, So Will I, Right? And look for the YouTube video that has like the universe and they sing the song. And we call it Lucia's song 
Because Lucia, our foster granddaughter, loves astronomy. And she, she loves um, the creation of the stars. And she's just mesmerized by it. So, so we call it Lucia's song. So her and I will, will, will hit that song. In fact, when we're driving along, for some reason, Mary-Kate's phone takes over my inboard sound system in my car. I mean, we discovered this by accident a couple weeks ago where we're driving. And she turned on her phone and like totally overrode my phone. My own car. What is the deal? And all of a sudden I hear the beginning of So Will I. Uh, Lucia and I have, have occasionally played that song and we'll sit and we'll sing it together. We feel like we're like Hillsong on the stage, you know. And so here's this 11-year-old and this, this 59-year-old singing So Will I. And, and it gets to this one lyric, this one lyric towards the end of the song. It's talking about creation and the beauty and it says, and in that moment a hundred billion failures disappear. And the last line is, you are the one who never leaves the one behind. That's the discovery of creation, of God's order of things. So, so that's our go-to song. Well, here's a song that's part of the origins poem of the Bible's creation narrative that I can just listen to over and over and over. You know, in fact, I never tire of reading, never, the first two chapters of the book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. I never tire of it. So, so here's a song for us this morning. The word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. How awesome that is. But it gets better. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Really, to do it justice, you need to read the whole chapter. From, from verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4, you just need to read that and take that in. So where do you begin as you read that, as we hear that? Where do you, where do I begin with understanding what Jesus Christ has done for us when we start reading this part of the Scriptures? Most people, when we start thinking about what Jesus has done for us, we most people begin with our sin. Most people turn to the Garden of Eden and man's fall. And in thinking about what Jesus has done for us, let's just call that grace, most people start to think about how bad they are and how they need Jesus. And most people go back to the Garden and they say, well, the cross is important because we sinned in the garden. And that's where most people start. They, they start with how bad they are. I am sinful. I'm a failure. I'm a jerk. Or, or maybe as they look at the world around them, they default to, I am not very attractive. There's nothing very significant about my life. I'm, I'm a nobody. 
And in our world, this is easy to fall prey to. In this world where, first of all, we are viewed as automatons in the workplace. We're just another data point on a spreadsheet, perhaps, or just another utility to be used to please the gods of materialism and commerce among us. We are told that we can find beauty and riches and meaning in the latest fashion or investment or experience. And if we post it just right on Facebook, the world will applaud. Just another attempt at making the gods of this world happy and accepting of us. But here's what's interesting. Very interesting to me. When the true story of creation was told, as we have recorded in the book of Genesis, it was told to set straight, first and foremost, what God really thought about human beings. In the culture surrounding the Genesis storyteller, okay, Mesopotamians, Sumerians, Babylonians, they all had their origin story, and they told a very different story. Their stories of the beginning focused on many gods who battled for supremacy. That's one of the narratives. And they too asked a question that we have asked. Just this summer we asked this question, what is mankind? Well, their answer to this question, these, these other philosophies and religions and thought processes, their answer to this question was that humans were created to serve and work for the gods. Automatons. Why make humans? Those other cultures would say to be slaves falling into the hands of the power-hungry, capricious gods. To do whatever they can to make themselves acceptable to the gods. It was a story that created fear. It was fear in the people who believed it, and it caused them to do whatever they could to try to be accepted by the other gods, and it also caused them to try to seek to have power over others, just like their gods. It, it caused them to place self in the center. Does this sound awfully familiar? And doesn't it sound incredibly sad? So, so the true Genesis story of the beginning, the narrative of God's creative power, was placed alongside the narrative of these other cultures as a corrective. But here's the good news. That's not the story where the one true God begins. That's not where grace begins. The optimism of God's grace teaches us a different story. Grace begins in the original intention that God had and still has for humankind. It was in creation that God made mankind. And what did he say? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The God-breathed image of God blessed us all as depositories of the very best of God. That's where God starts. God starts with generosity. God starts with blessing. God starts with flourishing. God starts with blessing us with his goodness and his grace. So, so now check this out. God stares at the only aspect of creation that has attributes that God has. The ability to reason, the power to create, the capacity for love. 
And he says, very good. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. You read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 and you understand this, that God's primary desire and posture is that of blessing. It is in his goodness on display through his creative activity that has in mind one goal, and that is for all creation to flourish, especially humankind. So we have to see something here. This is very contrary to our world. God does not come from a scarcity mentality that's just trying to survive, that's dog-eat-dog, that tries to get over on the other person, that tries to make sure that I just hoard everything I can so that I can have what I need. No, no, no. God doesn't come from a, a scarcity mentality that tries to protect and hoard his own goodness. He freely pours out his goodness upon all creation, but especially so the prime object of this desire for flourishing, which is you and me. Not once, but three times in chapter 1, verse 27, there is the declaration that God created man. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we see human beings now have this very unique relationship with God. God communicates with them alone. Read read the scripture and you see that God begins striking up a conversation with human beings. No other part of creation. And he shares with us the stewardship of the world. And so let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, is intended to without doubt point to the incomparable nature of human beings and their special relationship with God. Now that sounds amazing, but but let's make sure we understand its purpose. This is not intended to simply be intellectual reasoning or scriptural apologetics for the creation. This is about you. This is about me, about us. So here's my question for you. What happens if when we talk about Jesus Christ, we start here? We start at this place. What happens when we actually believe that within us is his image? What happens when we look in the mirror, we look in the mirror, no matter who we are, and we, and we try to hear God say, very good. That's hard to do sometimes. I know it is for me. What happens when we hear that and he still says that to us? No matter where you've walked, no matter what you've traveled, no matter what you've done, God looks at humankind and he goes, very good. That's grace. And it starts not with our view of ourselves or even our view of God. It starts with God's view of us. And he called you, me, very good. When you leave here today, you're going to get a sticker of that banner that's behind me. One of our students designed this. Hannah Kleppinger designed a sticker for our youth that are going to start a series on grace. And I asked her to design a sticker for our series. And so she designed this sticker. But you're going to get one of these. You can put it where I have mine on my, the back of my computer. You can put it wherever you want. Put it in your car, even if you don't stick it somewhere, just to remind yourself of this truth. 
I asked Hannah, though, tell me, tell me why this? I want to understand why this. And these were Hannah's words to me. The idea that God made us graceful in God's image before we ever sinned really struck, stuck it with me. This is where I got the idea of the heart. Creation. The heart is not only the center of our physical being. The word heart is often used to describe the center of our spiritual and emotional being. Now hear this. I kept thinking over the idea that God's grace is written on our hearts from the moment God knew us. And then she wrote, I hope you find the idea as powerful and beautiful as I did. And I say I do. Captured another way, Glenn Packham in his new book said, God himself made us on purpose and for a purpose and blessed us by calling us good and beautiful. That is our origin story. The truest thing about you is not who you are now or what you have done. The truest thing about you is who God made you to be. What a great statement that is. When God says very good, He's not just saying, like, we, you know, that's good. We think, we think the word ter, the term good, and we go, ah, that, that's kind of nice. No, what that really means, if we could possibly translate it in its fullness, yes, it means very good, but it also means lovely. It also means beautiful. That's, that's not me adding something to Scripture. That's what that phrase, very good, really means. It means beautiful and lovely and very good. So what does all this mean, very quickly? It has import on three things. First of all, identity. As Walter Brueggemann says, human beings are not the chattel of God. We are not simply used by God in some utilitarian way and purpose. We are rather agents with God. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 ambassadors of his we're agents of god and to whom so much is given in turn much is required of us as the highest of his creation that's all true but it means first first we belong to god in john wesley's covenant prayer which i've been using in my own spiritual formation a great deal He says this, he writes this part of the prayer, And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine and I am Thine. So be it. If you want to really understand who you are, start with your true identity. Not the identity that your job has created for you. Not the identity your material things have created for you. Not the identity the world has created for you. Not your online identity that social media has created for you. Start with your true identity. The psalmist says in Psalm 17, Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand. Those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. That's our true identity. We are his prized creation made in his image. The second thing it has great import on is value. We all want to be valued. But here's something we need to hear. This is what creation teaches us. We are not cosmic accidents that are the unplanned products 
of a random act of natural force. Let me say that again. So important. We are not cosmic accidents that are the unplanned products of a random act of natural force. No. God called each and every one of us into being. God called your life, my life, humankind. God called. Look at the scriptures. It says in the first two chapters of Genesis, he created, he made. But the word used most often is this, God spoke. And God called you. He called your life. He called my life into existence. God breathed his breath. Get this now. God breathed his breath not into the sun or moon, not into the sky or waters, not into plants or animals. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God breathed into us. So when we sing, it's your breath in my lungs. We're singing good theology. We're singing that we are born of the breath of God as human beings. And so do you see what that means? We are first and foremost, do you see it? We are first and foremost, first and foremost, we are products of grace. We are grace masterpieces. In fact, you, me, us, we are grace at its finest. That's the true story. That's the true value. This is not the narrative our failures tell us or the utilitarian values the world lays on us. The true identity of who we really are has been bludgeoned by sin. We'll talk about that next week. But at the beginning, God with precision and purpose and best of all love called you and me into being. And man, that changes when I start thinking about the value of my life, the value of all human life. Do you want to know what's at the heart of the sanctity of life? It's not a political position. It's this right here, that God breathed into human life. But then what does that mean, thirdly, about a third word? This is a very churchy word. The word salvation. What does this mean? What does the optimism of grace teach us about salvation? You see, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, every human being is asking one question in life. They may not phrase it this way, but every human being is asking one question. How can I be saved? Every person is asking that question. We just try to find different ways to save ourselves. I believe it is what all people ask because of what grace is actually about. If you simply settle on the idea that grace forgives us of our sins and punches our ticket to heaven, you are not getting the whole story. You're not getting the whole story. If it's just about fire insurance, just about punching your ticket to heaven and then you can just live any which way you want, you're not getting the whole story. Why are people looking for salvation? 
Well, let the scriptures help us. Colossians 3 says, you have taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, Salvation is the recovery of our memory. Salvation is God restoring you and me to the people we have always intended to be. That is why the entire world is asking, how can I be saved in some form or fashion? Because every human being wants to be what we are supposed to be. We all long to be made whole. Every human being. That's, that's not even a religious thing. That's a human thing. And the beauty is, is that's what salvation's about. What salvation is about is not fixing what happened at the Garden of Eden. It is about returning to where it all began and restoring us Restoring in us, in the world, in creation, what God has intended for us. Does God have to deal with what happened in the Garden of Eden? Absolutely. We'll get to that next week. But you see, we suffer from spiritual amnesia, and we need to recover the memory, the true story. We need to return to our origin and remember that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. How do we recover the image, though? Isn't that the question? How do we, how do we get saved? How do we get whole? How, how does this happen? Because we're so broken. Well, it took the consummate divine image bearer to make a way for us broken image bearers to discover the optimism of grace that actually transforms us, that actually renews us in the knowledge of the divine image, that actually becomes salvation, that recovers our memory, that cures our spiritual amnesia, that helps us get locked into a true identity of who we really are. And that is why Jesus came. I love what it says in Philippians 2. Who, being in very nature God, the very image of God, the very person of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so you see, the cross of Jesus Christ is the place where our memory begins to be restored. We are reminded from the very beginning that God gave grace to mankind at the very beginning. And we're reminded in the cross that God still gives grace to mankind. We're reminded that we are intended for a different path other than the path of sin, which mars the image of God in all of us. Remember what we heard at the beginning. At its essence, Mark Maddox says, God's grace is God's loving presence active in the world active in you and active in me and active in us now not just somewhere back there but right now and that is cause for optimism 
in our lives. Because that's true, every week as we talk about the optimism of grace, we are going to gather around this table Sunday in, Sunday out, and we're going to partake in communion. We're going to be reminded of the grace received in Jesus Christ that is only possible through what he has done. That because of Jesus, we have optimism for what God can and will do in us personally, what God can and will do us in us corporately, and what God can and do with us publicly as we seek to live out the image, the divine image within us. Because ultimately, what we see in the ultimate divine image bearer, Jesus Christ, what we see the divine image doing is giving oneself away. And so the way we become whole is we give ourselves away to God, to one another, and to the world. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, the divine image gave up everything so that you and me can find everything in him. That's grace. And that is the way to being truly human. That is the optimism of grace. And it all began one day when God called you and me very good very good. And that is what we're meant for.